Oklahoma. My my Oklahoma I, I could lawyer be wrong friend. About that, though. She 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 typed out the nineteen seventy in in nineteen seventy nine the Oklahoma Supreme Court declared the deference approach and explained that even under a strict deference approach the court the court may make an inquiry into what should be entitled deference. Even the deference approach is not a total bar to a civil court's jurisdiction, but is only a restriction on a court's adjudication of the matter before it. No matter what approach is used, a civil court may exercise equitable jurisdiction in a church controversy for the protection of a civil or property right. The Oklahoma yeah, Supreme Court. Let, let me, st let me Please, stop you right yeah. there. What the court was saying is, I have jurisdiction to decide a property matter because the, the deference method doesn't divest me of authority to decide the matter. I have jurisdiction. Because if, the property matter. if they don't do that, then hypothetically a church might just go around saying, we claim this property and there's nothing the state can do about it. There, there still has to be a check on churches behaving crazy or uh, uh, illegally in a civil sense. Well, yes. Okay. I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, so, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't have caught, keep going on the road you were going on. Sorry, yeah. brother. So, so the, uh, what the court is saying is I have jurisdiction to decide this matter. Mm -hmm. Um, the question is, how do I go about doing that? Ordinarily, the deference method applies, mm -hmm. which means I've got to determine what the conference has said and adopt its decision as mine mm -hmm. and defer to it. But if they are doing something that unjustly enriches them, mm -hmm. that is uh, uh, inequitable, uh, I have some latitude. I have some leeway, even under the deference method. That's that's apparently what the trial court has said. Well, yeah. let, let me back up for just a moment. Go ahead. Uh, in, in the early part of American history, during the colonial period, mm -hmm. before the First Amendment was ever adopted, uh, colonial courts would often apply the old what's called the Old English Rule. Back in England and Scotland, when there was a, a warring factions over church property, what would happen is the court would decide who gets the property based on the court's determination of who is being most faithful mm -hmm. to founding or original doctrines. Well, fast forward to, to this new republic in America and the First Amendment, should state courts have authority to decide what sound doctrine is? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The First Amendment acts as a bar to that. So the old English rule went by the wayside. And in its place, uh, two different methods evolved. And they were called different things, but nowadays they'd be called the deference method or the neutral principles of law method. Okay. It wasn't until, and so you see courts applying both in the 1820s and 1830s and 1850s and so forth. It wasn't until the 1880s, 1890s, that the U.S. Supreme Court had occasion to weigh in on the deference method that mm. some states were using. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that the deference method, where a state court decides, determines whatever the diocese or the conference or the presbytery has decided mm -hmm. and adopts that rule as the court's, that doesn't defend the First Amendment. If a state court wants to do it that way, they're entitled to do it that way. And, and the federal constitution doesn't act as a bar. So several states did it that way. But there's a growing awareness that that was kind of unfair because local churches would always lose. Mm -hmm. 
because a, a, conf a conference is never going to rule against itself. Right. And so many states started using the ordinary rules of law that apply to everybody else. Which seems to be what's happened in Oklahoma. That became known as neutral principles of, of, of law. Okay. So um, in Oklahoma, yeah. um, the, the deference method, I believe, applies under the Cimarron case. But what the trial judge apparently has said in, in this uh, first church Oklahoma City case is it's, it's not quite black and white. There's some gray. I have some latitude if I think something inequitable is occurring. Mm -hmm. And and she didn't quite use the word fraud, but she apparently in her findings of fact found a lot of things that were were unfair. Yes. And and uh and so the the uh um uh conference is saying, well you've overstepped your 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 uh, powers. Uh there's no fraud here. Uh the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine acts as a solid bar. Mm -hmm. The local church is saying um, it's either a garden variety property matter and you've got some latitude, uh, or if the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine does apply, there's an exception to it uh -huh. because they're committing fraud. So that, that's the position I think the parties are, are going to be developing on appeal. Hypothetically, is it possible that the, the lawyers for First Church are not making the case for fraud, but the judge herself has determined that fraud is an issue here? Uh, well, fraud fraud is can take many forms. Yeah, and it's a malleable concept. It requires purposeful intent. You either actively uh, misrepresent something or sure. or con uh, conceal something material. But the question was, can a judge make a ruling in favor of the prosecution in this case, First Church, even if the prosecution doesn't make that argument? Um. The court can, on its own motion, its own volition, lawyers call it sua sponte. They use the Latin uh, um, so they can charge more. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but the court can, on its own motion, find that. Okay. But ordinarily, mm -hmm. it requires a party to either plead it in in writing mm -hmm. or to make argument and and and, and put on uh, affirmative evidence. Um, certainly on appeal, mm -hmm. on appeal, an appellate court cannot base its decision on a grounds that a, a party hadn't asserted. With the judge... uh, so the appellate, the appellate court is going to be limited based on the assignments of error that the party appealing the decision would have to list in their brief. Well, but so the the judging in, in the original case would be considered a party. No, no. Ah, okay. So that complicates things because hypothetically, the judge provided arguments that neither the defense nor the prosecution utilized in the proceedings. Yeah, sometimes the judge sort of sees things, sees gaps uh -huh. that the the, the 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 parties themselves or in, the, in their legal counsel, their legal representatives have. Have for whatever reason left unexplored, maybe because they think something else is a stronger argument. Yeah. But during the the course of of the evidence, some things percolate and surface, or 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 aggregate to the point where a a, a court is persuaded that this C is really the key issue, not A or B. Yeah. And, and has authority to to uh, raise that on their own volition. 
See, this is just, it's like learning to speak a foreign language. There's just all these rules that don't apply in normal life, but they are the bread and butter of, of how one navigates this world. Let's talk about a, uh, some cases that are closer to home just to, to see, because it still has to do with Oklahoma. When I say closer to home, I mean for you, because you were tied to the first church, Shreveport case. You were mm -hmm. their representative. You're at Harvest Church Dothan, uh, which is tied to the Alabama-West Florida Annual Conference. Correct. Um, one of the things that my former conference here is now doing is the, the court had no right to get involved here. Vote no against ratifying the disaffiliation of First Church so that this um, uh, invasion, this violation from the state is not validated. And so I'm going to do a piece later just going, these two things are not related. You know, whether you vote yes or no does not in any way uh, correct the state. But the larger question here is these neutral principles cases, you know, if we're not talking about class action lawsuits that are looking to overturn a precedent of law, but you're just looking for a court to wade into the waters of an individual church case, do those have any impact on jurisprudence whatsoever? Can they change norms in the the exercise of state law over uh, denominational bodies, or is this just nothing? It has no. What they're saying, this is really, you know, this is a, a change in Amer in American law. Does it have implications so far as norms in in First Amendment protections of of religious rights? Well, I, um, I'm not sure I understand your question in, in full, but okay. let me just offer a few thoughts. Yeah. Um, federal law is relevant. I mean, church property cases are based on state law, but the federal constitution and the law that's been developed around it sort of sets some outer boundaries that state courts cannot go beyond. Right. And uh, in my perception, there is in this current application of 2553, there, there is, I think, a, a general correlation between the conferences that have been um, most draconian uh, in, in uh, interpreting and applying 2553, mm -hmm. in, 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 uh, maybe applying it in an uneven way as occurring in Oklahoma, apparently, or imposing high financial requirements, in, like in California, or trying to suspend things altogether, as occurred in Georgia and, and Arkansas. There's a correlation between the conferences that tend to do those sorts of things and the states where the deference method is used, like Florida, New Jersey, uh, California, arguably, at least to some extent, Oklahoma. So would uh, I understand you being saying those states, they don't pull that crap huh? in Texas because they know in Texas it wouldn't fly something? In, in Texas is strictly neutral principles of right. law. And so they so, just know they wouldn't, they wouldn't get away with it, so they don't even try it on the conference. So, so conference officials in Florida, California, Georgia, know that the, the local churches really aren't going to have any remedy or recourse in civil court. Okay, yeah. So if so long as they avoid committing fraud, those conferences can act as an extreme a way as they, they want to. Right. And if the local church goes to state court, the state court says, well, ecclesiastical abstention doctrine or um, 
if we do have jurisdiction, we apply the deference method. Yeah. And the conference wins. And so a conference in those states know that they're kind of in the catbird seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the local churches really don't have a lot of bargaining strength or negotiating leverage. Mm-hmm. And the conference can kind of run roughshod to a degree that they they uh, um, often can't in states where um, a local church may have uh, a, a valid claim to make that the trust is unenforceable. Right. In Texas or Kansas or um, Ohio or, or wherever. Mm-hmm. So some of these cases, like, um, well, was Louisiana a, a, a deference state or a neutral principles? Louisiana is a neutral principles of law state. Okay, so then that one, it wasn't very difficult necessarily to push back against the conference as it was, and you said that uh, Al, uh, Mississippi was was a deference state. Well, no, Mississippi's a neutral principles of law state. Oh, okay. So that would explain uh, why they Okay. And in, in the Shreveport matter, yeah. uh, while neutral principles of law applied, uh, the Shreveport church had an extremely complicated uh, deed record okay. with something like 90 different parcels put together over a 150-year period to form a contiguous five or six city block Mm-hmm. Some of those deeds had trust language in it. In fact, many. Uh, some didn't. Um, and so the, the Shreveport Church was would look at a very challenging situation if it landed in court, mm-hmm. even though neutral principles of law would apply. But fortunately, they were in an annual conference that was not imposing some extreme percentage of net asset value as a condition for giving them a quit claim deed. Okay. Uh, they only had to pay a couple of years of apportionment. And a, I think even the pension thing was, was waived if I recall correctly. So the, the financial terms and conditions of dismissal uh, uh, were, were enviable. Um, the, the real issue was after so many churches had already left the preceding year, uh, whether there'd be enough traditionalist churches at the uh, annual conference uh, to ratify the congregation's vote. Right. And in fact, it ended up being ratified by an overwhelming margin. And um, the matter was satisfactorily resolved without need of going into court. Well, does, am I right in remembering that litigation began whenever the conference was dragging its feet and letting them even take the church vote and go through the 25 Well, no, the, the, this is a. This is a very interesting situation. Mm-hmm. What happened was uh, some of the, uh, I'll call it more progressive, more far left uh, uh, advocates of, of um, progressive theology and LBGTQ mm-hmm. uh, 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 um, interests uh, were unhappy with the conference for what it per- what they perceived as being too lenient uh-huh. in letting churches go sure. without holding their feet to the fire with extremely high financial demands. Mm-hmm. And so uh, some retired Methodist ministers banded together and filed a lawsuit seeking to enjoin or block the, the whole conference from any further proceedings under 2553. Now, 
First Church, Shreveport, was in the middle of that process uh-huh. and was headed towards the exit door mm-hmm. under favorable financial uh, or fair financial uh, terms. And they wanted the proceedings to continue. And so we actually intervened. So, so the conference was a defendant in a lawsuit filed by the progressives to block 2553 entirely. On behalf of our client, First Church Shreveport, we intervened in that lawsuit to align ourselves with the conference to argue that these plaintiffs were violating the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. That the, is the ordinary application of 2553 is an internal ecclesiastical uh, matter of administration mm. that civil courts can't weigh in on. Right. And we were successful in persuading the trial judge that that's correct. And he dismissed the lawsuit. The conference was then free to proceed with the next steps in 2553, mm-hmm. hold its ratifying. Uh, 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 annual conference, and First Church was was approved and 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 let out along with about ninety other churches. Yeah, from afar, it wasn't ever very clear to me who the main people gumming up the works were. If it was the conference or if it was, I, I knew that there was some group of retired clergy that leaned left. Yeah, but I the, the I should have known to call you and get the the, the details. <laughs> now the situation in Dothan. At Harvest Church is a very different situation. They are so uh, Alabama, West Florida. I did cover them and report on them for a bit. They were pretty fair in allowing churches to disaffiliate until after this last wave. But Dothan Harvest Church had filed even before, uh, and they they're taking a very I would consider a biblically faithful position. Just saying, no, we're not going to pay a ransom fee. I, I think that's what I've I've heard some representatives from there well, saying. Yeah, the har- the Harvest Church is in uh, a uh, enviable, in my view, position, a position which probably most Methodist churches aren't. Okay. Um, many Methodist churches, like the church in Dothan, mm-hmm. are located in a state that applies neutral principles of law. Mm-hmm. But you have to have good facts to take advantage of that law. Mm-hmm. And many Methodist churches don't have good facts. Their deeds and articles do contain trust language. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church in Dothan, however, has is, is clean as a whistle. There is no trust language, direct or indirect, in its articles or its deeds. Okay. So it, it's, it's sort of been a perfect world where the facts and the law really align. So mm-hmm. if they went into court, they have a very strong case. And they felt that the fees that the um, conference was uh, requiring, and in particular, I think it had to do with, uh, my my law partner's been handling this, uh, I I farmed it out to him, um, had to do with the the calculation of the pension uh, amount. There's some funny numbers going on, uh, or so it it seemed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... The, the local church instructed us to file suit on its behalf to have the state court declare that the denomination Sword of Damocles uh, was uh, an emperor with no clothes. Okay. That there, in fact, was no trust. And so, um, in response, the conference filed a motion to dismiss our suit, alleging that this was just a matter of an internal ecclesiastical administration for which you have no jurisdiction to decide one way or another. Mm-hmm. 
We said, no, it, it isn't. We're not talking about how 2553 is or isn't being applied. Yeah. Our lawsuit simply asked you to declare the property rights. Yeah. Clean and and, simple, and the yeah. court agreed with us. Okay. And and dis, dis, denied the motion to dismiss. Yeah. The conference is taking it up on appeal. Uh the the lower litigation has been stayed except for discovery where both sides are exchanging documents and taking depositions and so forth. So so that's where that case currently stands. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, very optimistic. Granted, I'm, I'm, I'm biased. My sure. firm is counsel of record in that matter. Yeah. Put that on the table. But I, I think the Dothan Church is in an unusually strong position uh, there. Well, and the, I'm going to bring it back to my main concern, which was rulings on these cases. I guess people like me who are hopeful have been hoping that if judges sided with local churches, that that would have implications so far as uh, mandating conferences to either stop using 2553 altogether and let churches go or make the provisions of 25.3 as bare bones as possible. But what I think I'm learning from you today is these are just case-by-case issues. They don't necessarily have any implications for other churches in those conferences whatsoever or changing the provisions by which they can disaffiliate. These really are just isolated uh, yeah, when I uh, was advising a uh, church in another denomination many years ago, mm-hmm. I analogized the situation to one of these nature shows you see on television, where there's this mass migration. And even though uh, you've got a mass of folks exiting at the same time, uh, each new GNU has to cross the river by themselves. That is an animal, yes. Okay. Yeah, and so and so in most states that apply ordinary property law mm-hmm. and corporation law and trust law, as I said, the outcomes are fact specific, and so um, the the things that are now you and of course the law in one state is only going to be controlling in that state. In another state, it may have persuasive value, but it's not going to control. So if you have a court decision, even a Supreme Court decision in a state, it's not going to automatically control coast to coast. Um, And and so you're not going to have a single court decision that is going to have repercussions necessarily throughout the entire denomination. Now, the SMU case is interesting that was just as uh, an appellate court was just decided a couple of days ago. The, the, uh, the court said that language in the SMU articles mm-hmm. that said that the denominational constitution would control as it might be amended from time to time, including the addition of tr- uh, trust language, did not create a trust over the SMU property. And um, sometimes when there is no express trust language, denominational lawyers have argued, and some courts have held, that a trust nevertheless was created indirectly by that language sort of being bootstrapped. Yeah. Uh, but the Texas appellate court said, no, under Texas law, that doesn't create a trust. Interesting. Now, uh, it does. It did create a, a use restriction, and the conference 
did prevail in most parts on on appeal. Okay. But that portion of of the decision that interpreted that language uh, is is uh, I think significant and will have some reverberations in, in other states. The last time I read about the SMU case, SMU Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, uh, one of the the thirteen seminaries of the United Methodist Church, my uh, family members have gone there. Um, the trustees of the seminary decided to try and legally separate themselves from the denomination at that time because the denomination's stance was not uh, affirming of LGBTQ persons, and that was the reason that they used. As the ground shifts in, in the denomination, I'm not sure that they've continued making those claims, but it sounds like it's, it's climbed the rungs of this ladder to higher um, uh, court systems where uh, decisions are needing to be are being made right now as to whether or not they can boot United Methodist leadership from their trustees boards and agencies at, at the SMU is that what's at stake there well it, it, it's really control over the assets of uh, SMU okay uh, as um, managed by the board of directors of the SMU corporation okay and who has control of that and the SMU articles, of incorporation. Uh, of course, SMU dates back to 1911 or 1916 right. or something. Yeah. But the last time the articles were amended until an attempt just recently in 2019 was 1996. Mm -hmm. Going into the litigation, those were the operative articles. And those articles of incorporation say something very unusual that I've not seen elsewhere mm -hmm. in local churches. The articles say that um, the board can amend the articles of incorporate. Well, first of all, the articles state that the property will be subject to the control of the conference. That, that that's in the articles. Okay, that seems. The articles clear. go on to state that those articles can never be amended. Okay, unless the conference gives its permission. Okay, sure. Yeah. Now, what the uh, dissenting board of SMU did in 20, um, I think it was 2019, if I have the dates correct, they went ahead and amended those articles unilaterally. That they were actually not allowed to do by their constitution. But by, by the prevailing articles at the time. Yeah, okay. They did not seek conference approval. And so they amended the articles to to sever themselves from the UMC and right. remove UMC references in their articles and did not seek conference approval for that. Okay. And and they felt that they had authority to do that under Texas law. Right, yeah, because Texas is not the a conference said, state. no, you don't, right. uh, under Texas law. Uh, the 1996 articles control... And if you're going to sever yourself from the UMC and remove those references in your 96 articles, you have to get our conference permission. Mm -hmm. And so the the court was called upon to decide who was right under Texas law. Yeah. And and the appellate court essentially, in, in most respects, ruled in favor of the conference. Interesting. Now, there's there's a, a a matter of how to interpret a certain Texas statutory provision. Yeah, and that may be grounds for appeal as the case goes forward. Mm -hmm. 
but there was an 83 page opinion on this matter just issued, I think, uh, um, just a few days ago. So what I've wanted to do with this uh, rhetoric from the annual conference about our vote on Saturday in Oklahoma is as they're extrapolating all of these large First Amendment implications for this court involvement here, I've wanted to say that's hyperbolic. That's way beyond the pale. There's no way that this is going to spin out into anything that has larger implications for First Amendment uh, law in America. I, I've I've kind of pushed in that direction to see if you'd agree with me on that, and I think what I understand you to be saying is, no, uh, interpretation of U.S. law, even constitutional federal law, sometimes there's a big deciding case at the top that really changes jurisprudence, but sometimes it's a series of thousands of news crossing the river that really creates a, a different norm where you revise what is has up till now been an understanding of how the state interacts with ecclesiastical authority. So, yeah. however, however, the Oklahoma court decides that matter, mm -hmm. lawyers and conferences and courts in other states are going to look to the body of U.S. Supreme Court case law on the boundaries and how to interpret the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it may have ramifications elsewhere in Oklahoma mm -hmm. and in that particular conference. And so it, it's, you know, maybe worth fighting about legally in, in, for the, those reasons. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, uh, even in another case in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. whether or not the deference method is going to apply strictly or whether or not the judge has some latitude because of some, uh, inequities. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the, the facts that are present in the first church case may not be the facts present in that other case. Right. So even there, uh, what the, the legal outcome in, in, in that case isn't going to automatically control in every other church in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I would think the, the, the best approach uh, at this Saturday annual conference is is an appeal to just fundamental fairness you know a, apart from the legal arguments pro and con mm -hmm. uh, what's right under the facts of this case right as yeah. as presented yeah and 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 an appeal to conscience um now wh whether that's talking to a brick wall uh, at that juncture or not, I, I don't know. Yeah. But um, I, I think a, a, an appeal based on fairness, and and of course, <clears throat> you know, both sides um, have been negotiating financially, uh -huh. and and in almost every instance, you know, common ground financially can be found, and then folks can do the paperwork. Um. And it seems unusual that the financial positions of the conference would be so extreme, the demands, and, and what the local church is willing to pay would be so paltry that there couldn't be some movement uh, to, to come to some, some agreement. And then it, 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 it gets, um, you know, rubber stamped. Now, going into that ratifying conference, I, I believe the way it works under 2553 is, is that church and that conference 
would have signed a disaffiliation agreement that sets out the financial terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the parties have come to a, a meeting of the minds financially. Um, but uh, there's now a move afoot not to give the final required blessing under 2553 with, with conference ratification. Yeah. Because uh, um, some alleged shenanigans occurred in, in yeah. imposing some additional requirements. And now the judge has stepped in and, and said, no, you got to do it this way. Well, we'll see what happens Saturday, and I'm 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 hoping that I just sit down and shut up. I I have a pattern of getting up and and talking, and I I'm hoping that my talking on the front end on the internet can just help me sit down and shut up on Saturday, and that there is indeed a a concern for basic fairness and rightness and justice and equity. Um, this I, does this does illustrate a problem with twenty five fifty three. Oh, there's only one. Well. <laughs> Yeah, twenty five fifty three is um, a positive thing as opposed to a denomination not having any administrative exit path. Sure. Uh, the problem, and 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 there are some common denominators in twenty five fifty three that all conferences have to follow. Mm -hmm. But within twenty five fifty three, a lot of discretion has been delegated to annual conferences and right. their bishops and their district superintendents. As to how to implement it, yes, and and that leaves you at the mercy sometimes of the personality uh, or ideological convictions of of a particular bishop or a particular district superintendent yeah, or superintendent, a majority yes. of a board of trustees. Yeah, and and so um, twenty five fifty three is not a perfect vehicle by any means, no. and and this this litigation erupts. When I think um, one party or the other tries to exploit the opportunities that that those gaps have given it, right? I can, so I will. Uh, it's a it's a real problematic mindset. I understand it in a worldly setting, but for it to be utilized in a church setting sure is scandalous, in my opinion. It's uh, in my experience, and I've done this for almost twenty years mm -hmm. with uh, executive presbyters, bishops district superintendents, um, local pastors, um, uh, and, and, and the lawyers that represent them. Um, there is sadly, uh, all too often a lack of grace and, 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 uh, and ironic spirit, mm -hmm. um, um, oftentimes to their credit, there is but it's not a given, right? You can't by any means. That. Yeah, and well, and and the mistake that a lot of local pastors make is assuming that grace will be extended, that an ironic spirit will prevail, and and they 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 put too much trust in the relationships they think they've cultivated uh, when property hasn't been an issue, mm -hmm. and and um, and sadly uh, the tactics can turn pretty hardball. Uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the it's not in the Bible, but the truism uh, "hope for the best, prepare for the worst" has always seemed like a good approach in in a number of fields. And so, as we're closing up this conversation, and we're thinking of the the congregations right now that are still in the United Methodist Church that are pretty sure they're not going to be happy within the denomination in the future, and they're they're wanting to have this conversation late rather than never. 
Is there any guidance that you can offer these churches that are, um, you know, every conference is different, so we can't get into the nitty-gritty of each conference, but if, if you were the legal counsel for just average, medium to small church not made of money that's wanting to think about disaffiliation, is there any kind of encouragement to offer? Is there any kind of wisdom to to bestow at this point, or is it kind of just, hey, this is the well, Wild West, uh, do what you do? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, most conferences are not imposing draconian financial requirements, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of lawyering that has to be done as you go through the twenty-five fifty-three process. But usually, it's a process that doesn't take more than five to seven thousand dollars worth of legal services. Sometimes you got to incorporate, you got to look at review deeds, you got to transfer assets, and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, because the conference requires that. Um, but it's a administratively at a minimum a, a two to four month process mm-hmm. because the, the 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 2553 process is, is multifaceted yeah there's step a b c d and, and e and so forth mm-hmm. and so under the best of circumstances you know it, it's a a two to four month process the last step of which requires uh an annual conference ratification vote right and most annual conferences, have met in uh, meet in ordinary session annually in May or June. Yeah, been my experience. Yeah, and if they have a additional convocation or gathering or session in, a, in an extra annual conference, mm-hmm. uh, which many have done just for this twenty five fifty three purpose, most conferences have already had that this year. Right. I mean, a few may be later in in the year, but not many. So for thousands so, of churches, their the timeline is already closed for them, it, right? Yes. And and so this window of opportunity that twenty five fifty three presented mm-hmm. uh, is rapidly closing, without well, any assurance yeah, that anything closed. is going to replace it. So yeah. a, a a local church would be only left with litigation as an option. And they would need to hope that they're in a neutral principles of law uh, state as opposed to different state. And they would need need to hope that they have good facts, Mm -hmm. that there's not trust language in their deeds or articles. Mm -hmm. So to to determine that, they need to, I would think, retain counsel with relevant competency to review their articles and deeds to determine the strength or weakness of their legal position um, because they're not going to have an ecclesiastical administrative option mm-hmm. for all practical purposes much longer if, if they even have it now with, with the time requirements of 2553. The and other, they, they may or may not have legal recourse as an alternative. The other option that I've talked about on a segment recently is there's a paragraph 2549, which is declaring exigent circumstances and closing a church building and then some conferences are creating a provision where they sell the church back to the community. And so it's probably not going to be an option for richer or well-located churches in urban or suburban areas, but for smaller rural churches that have a building that would be an albatross because uh, it, it would... Right. Uh, yeah. There is an administrative way in other provisions in, in the Book of Discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to require a um, cooperating... A beneficent, gracious conference yes. to work with the local church. Um, 
it would require a situation where the uh, it's not an asset that the conference wants to assume authority over. Right. You know, they, they don't want to pay the insurance and the light bill and, and the lawn maintenance, and they can't repopulate it because it's in some sparse rural area and, and, and so forth. Uh-huh. And so it's got to be in the financial interest of the conference to convey it to the local church yes. or give it a, give a quit claim deed since they're not the legal owner to begin with can right. they a quit claim deed for a relatively modest sum uh-huh. so uh, there may be some alternative options going forward yeah uh but the circumstances the have to be right yeah so for richer or well located churches in in conferences where the door has already closed or they just don't make it out before 2553 expires there's not a lot of hope as it stands for an, a, a practical exit outside of litigation in a friendly, neutral principle state if your legal documents uh, have the right language on it. So we're looking realistically at probably hundreds, maybe a couple thousand churches really being stuck somewhere they don't want to be. And in that event, you're looking at gritting your teeth and bearing theology and ecclesiastical exercise that they find really bad, or uh, litigation and losing, or just leaving the building and assets behind and starting afresh somewhere. But those really do seem to be the only uh, options, right? Well, it's it's possible that they could litigate and prevail. The question is, if there is trust language in their articles and deeds, can that language be rescinded or revoked by amending the articles okay. and correcting the deeds under the state law where that property is located. Okay. Some trusts are irrevocable. Right. Some trusts are not. Okay. They can be revoked. And that's a state law question. Okay. So I would think a church would it would be penny wise and pound foolish not to pay some competent lawyer. Uh, a modest sum to examine their deeds, to examine their articles, see if there's problematic language or not, mm-hmm. and if there is, whether the law of the state allows that to be rescinded and corrected, so that that local church is better postured, yeah, legally going forward to exercise whatever options it might feel it needs to, depending upon what might happen in the future. Well, that's a lot of good information. I, I already knew, we, talking to you before, that you'd be a, a wellspring of information, and you've been very gracious with your time and your energy and your expertise in this uh, time. Lloyd, um, for anyone who watches this and they just really want to learn more and sink their teeth in more, just briefly, what do you think that they should do? Is there a website they should go to, a book they should get? Would you have them reach out to any law firm in particular? Well, uh, your average litigator isn't going to be familiar with this very niche area of the law. Right. If you um, they go to a real estate lawyer, most real ninety nine percent of the real estate lawyers are folks that do closings uh-huh. when you buy or sell a prop- property. Uh-huh. This is a different uh, kettle of fish here. Uh, there really are very few lawyers around the country that handle this right. type of thing and have any familiarity with it. Uh, I'm semi-retired. Uh, I'm trying, as, uh, as we talked about off camera, I, I feel 
a little like Michael Corleone in Godfather 3. Every time I think I'm out, I get pulled back in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I have uh, uh, trained some uh, very capable younger lawyers at my firm that do a lot of this uh, nationwide. Um, if, if they are interested in exploring, retaining someone from my firm or, or someone in, in their other part of the world mm -hmm. uh, through a standard engagement letter, I can kind of walk that process through with them. If they wanted to contact me at, at the Taylor Porter website, which you can post or, or give. Okay. Um, but the nuts and bolts, uh, I'm really passing to others. Okay. I've been donating a lot, a lot of time. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to gin up business by right. by by saying this. Um, but I, I think it's a smart thing for any church to know what its own deeds say. Yeah. Yeah. And what its own articles of incorporation say. Yeah. And what and and whether that gives the denomination a right or not. And if it does, can that be changed? Yeah. That's a preliminary threshold inquiry that I think any church ought, ought to make, regardless of what decisions they're going to make going going forward, yeah. uh, that they'll be more informed. Yeah, knowledge is power. Okay. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. So um, Lloyd is, has told you, friends, how it is that you can follow up with him or on this subject and, and potentially serve your church and potentially learn some very helpful things. I, I hope that this has been a very helpful time for you to reflect on what your church is going through, has gone through, might go through, and, and make better decisions going forward. So Lloyd, once again, finally, thank you so much for joining me, and, and God bless you as you enjoy semi-retirement. Well, thank you. I have uh, tried to put these legal concepts in, in conversational English as best I could. Yeah. Uh, if someone, uh, these ideas of trusts, and neutral principles and deference and and so forth are foreign concepts to most people. Right. Uh, you have my contact information, my uh, email address. If you want to post it, you're you're welcome to do that. Okay. Uh, and I, I can respond briefly to most folks, uh -huh. and then refer them to someone who can handle the matter for them if they want to take a deep deeper dive. Neat. Thank you, Lloyd, and uh, thanks to everybody for supporting Plain Spoke, and I enjoy doing this stuff, so uh, make sure, if you if you ever have um, stuff you think I should know, you can email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com, and uh, I'm on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. I'm all over the place, so make sure to, to like and subscribe and follow me wherever you are, and we'll see if we can't continue to uh, be an encouragement to those who are feeling really discouraged in the United Methodist Church. And we're going to just encourage the larger Wesleyan body of people outside of the United Methodist Church and the GMC or what have you. So um, it's it's a fun project I'm a part of. I'm, I'm glad to have so many of you on board with me and join up. All right, Thank we'll you, see Jeffrey. you friends later. Yes. And God bless you.